0: We will continue our study in this great epistle. Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 through 17. Let's read the word of God. "'Evil people and imposters go on from bad to worse, "'deceiving and being deceived. "'But as for you, continue in what you have learned "'and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, "'and how from childhood you have been acquainted "'with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise "'for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. "'All Scripture is breathed out by God "'and profitable for teaching.'" for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Let's pray. Lord God, as we come to this familiar and yet majestic text of your word, we pray that you would open our eyes, that you would open our ears, that you would speak light into the darkness of our hearts, that you would Um, prepare the soil for the seed of your word, and that you, by your grace and by your work, would make it grow. Lord, we want to know how we would please you. We want to know how we can grow in you, and we want to know how to be guarded from the evils of this world, Lord. Speak to us now in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. When young people are considering a profession... More and more in our culture, the answer is to go on to further education, um, especially in a university or college. But still today, somewhat, but far more frequently in years past, the notion of apprenticeship was a a main track for learning a skill. Um, Where I grew up in New Hampshire, there is a master crystal cutter, Um, he made the Wimbledon Trophy. Um, as well as some other notable trophies. And, and under him, he had two or three at all times men, apprenticing, people who were learning their craft from him. It's really fascinating to see. And so this notion of a master, a skilled artisan, and an apprentice. And the reason why that relationship's valuable is, is yes, there is education taking place. There is learning and books being read, I'm sure, but you get to see it done firsthand. And there's something about that. There's something you get from that in an apprenticeship that a purely classroom environment lacks. It's a valuable and useful way of learning. Well, in this passage, Paul is going to show himself to have been an apprentice in that respect to Timothy. Paul is going to remind Timothy, draw him to the study of Paul's own life. We see that right there in the opening words of, of verse 10. You, however, have followed my teachings A little bit later in verse 14, which we'll look at next week. But as for you, continue in what you have learned, having firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. So it's not simply the content of the teaching abstracted from the teacher, but rather it's the teaching and the person who did the teaching and the manner of the teaching and the life of that person all coming together. That's what Paul is calling upon Timothy to To help him resist the dangers of this world. As you remember, last week in chapter 3, we spent nine verses of Paul warning and describing about the dangers and the wisdom of the world that would creep into the church. He says in verse 5 Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. And so last week was the problem, last week was the danger. This week and next week is the cure. What are we to do living in the world, but not of the world? How are we to purify ourselves and and stay untainted, uncontaminated from the wisdom of the world, especially since we know that false teachers and false brothers will creep into the church? The answer is not to go join a monastery. That has been tried. One answer in the history of the church has been, well, we'll just leave the world. And there are some churches and some Christian families that appears to be their strategy. Rather, we want to be what the Lord said, in the world but not of it. And here, in this passage, over the next two weeks, we will see some vital, vital steps in in guarding ourselves from that. But, But this week in particular, as we look at the first part of 10 to 17, we'll just be focusing on 10 to 13, imitating Paul and his sufferings. Imitating Paul and his sufferings. And so we're to dive in and and we're to learn. We're sitting alongside of Timothy. Remember, Paul's writing to Timothy. He's in jail. He's at the end of his life. And he wants to pass the torch to Timothy. He wants Timothy to to run strong. We've already seen, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. Embrace suffering. Don't run away from it. You have a spirit of power, not fear. This week, we're going to hear the hard word that all who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. But wrapped up in that, Paul's reminding him of of their relationship, their time spent together, the apprenticeship, if you will. Paul's modeling of what he taught, imitating Paul and his sufferings. And so the text falls into two chunks. We'll just dive in on the first one, verses 10 to 11, closely following the life of Paul. Closely following the life of Paul. The word translated there, you have Followed my teachings means a close sort of step-by-step accompanying inspection. He, and he's referring to the years that, that Paul and Timothy worked together in, in missionary endeavors. If you read through Acts, Timothy, starting in chapter 16, joins Paul on his missionary journeys. Timothy had much person-to-person watching Paul at work, both in the church, privately. He got to see the Apostle Paul's life was on display. And that's one of the really valuable things about fellowship. It, fellowship accomplishes so many things, but there can be a tremendous danger when, when one's teachers and leaders are unaccessible. Um, I, I was at a church before this that I attended. It was so large, you virtually had no hope, no opportunity to really get to spend much one-on-one, life-on-life time with the elders and the leaders of the church. And so consequently, you you hope they're godly men, you trust they're godly men, you believe they're godly men, but what you lack due just to the the size of the beast is this, and it's valuable. It's one of the reasons I'm excited to be part of a smaller church where you can actually realistically have the expectation of getting to know everybody, because it's an accountability for me, because just as Paul is saying, hey, look to what I taught and look to how I lived, I need to be able to do the same thing. We all, as we teach, need to do the same thing. Our lives and character are on display. And Paul has already stressed in 1 Timothy 3 through the qualifications of elders and deacons that it's not enough for them to know stuff. They've got to be living stuff. Because the one who teaches and what he teaches can't be separated. When we looked at the false teachers in the first nine verses, we looked not only at what they taught, but the lives they lived. And so when Paul calls on Timothy here to examine, to to rehearse, to go back and think through what he saw Paul do, we're going to cover both Paul's teaching and his life, and most specifically, his sufferings. So point A here, we'll first look at his character, his character. Paul gives a list of nine things he would draw Timothy's attention to, nine characteristics, character traits, if you will, for Timothy to remember, and the, by implication, to imitate. They're right there in the text. His teaching, his conduct, aim in life, faith, patience, love, steadfastness, persecutions, and sufferings. And I've broken them into, the first bunch, into four headings. First, his teaching. His teaching. Now that comes first. You've heard me say this before, but what we believe, and what we think, undergirds all of what we do. Our lives are simply the expressions, the manifestations of our belief system. You've heard me say before that that sin is simply lived down unbelief. When we believe a lie, when our hearts tell us, no, you deserve that, no, it's okay, no one will mind, the Lord will forgive you, you are believing a lie, and then you act on that lie and you sin. And so Paul first points and reminds Timothy to his teaching. And if you've been here over the last previous months, You know how much Paul emphasizes teaching. He cares about teaching. It's all over these pastoral epistles. In 1 Timothy 4, Paul says this to young Timothy. In chapter 4, verse 6, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. He's concerned about healthy, good teaching. He's concerned about his own teaching. And A little further in chapter 4, 1 Timothy, he says this in verse 11 Command and teach these things. Let no one despise your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift that you have that was given you by prophecy when, by the council of elders when they laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and your teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing will save both yourself and your hearers. Back in 1 Timothy, Paul placed heavy charges on Timothy concerned about his teaching. Notice even there there's no separation between Timothy's teaching and his conduct in life. They are united. They are united. The danger of being removed from those you teach, one of the weaknesses of a purely academic classroom environment is the teacher's life is not inspected by the students and what can slowly happen is a growing rift. It doesn't always happen, but it can happen. It's a danger. But a growing rift between what you teach and the life you live. And so there's a a great benefit of living among and living with the people you teach and know because they see your life. And it's a good corrective so there doesn't grow too big of a divide. He reminds him to his teaching. And of course, all of Paul's epistles lay out his teaching. Paul cares about teaching, concerned about the truth. But let's move on now to his, his conduct and aim of life. It's the whole picture of Paul that he's, he's calling Timothy to keep in mind and to rehearse and to remember. First, the content of his teaching, but, but second, his conduct and aim in life. Now, if you turn with me to Acts 20, the Apostle Paul is a remarkable, remarkable man. And you get a flavor for his aim and conduct in life. What was Paul's life mission? What drove him? What, what was he all about? And as he says farewell to the elders at Ephesus, if you remember, he's on his way to Jerusalem. It's already been prophesied that when he gets to Jerusalem, he will be bound and chained and delivered over to the Romans. He meets one last time with the elders at Ephesus in, in Acts chapter 20, and he rehearses his ministry with them. I want you to see the Apostle Paul's heart as he's wearing it on his sleeve. I want you to get a feel for what he was about, what he was passionate about, what his conduct and aim in life were. What is he reminding Timothy of. Acts 20. We'll pick it up in verse 17. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time. From the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. I love this. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks, repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So what was Paul firstly passionate about? He was passionate about the gospel. He was passionate about calling people to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. He taught it publicly and house to house, in tears and in trials. He was a gospel-driven man. And now, verse 22, Behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not count my life of any value, nor of precious to myself, if only I may finish my course, and the ministry that I've received from the Lord Jesus. In a week or two in chapter 4, Paul's going to talk about finishing that course. As Paul is writing 2 Timothy, he is near the end of his course. This life goal and aim is one that he will succeed in. Verse 25, And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone out and proclaimed the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of you all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. What else is Paul passionate about? What, was, what drove his life and his ministry? Not just teaching his favorite Bible verses. Not just teaching the happy parts of the Bible. He taught the whole counsel of God. One of the reasons I'm committed to, this church is committed to verse-by-verse teaching through books is you don't get to pick and choose your text. If I got to pick and choose my text, I would just pick my favorite text. I mean who wouldn't but i would not teach the whole counsel of god and and if god willing if i have enough time long enough the elders here we will be teaching the whole counsel of god to this church we don't get to pick and choose we don't get to skip over this problematic text last week was kind of a bit of a downer nine verses describing false teachers but we teach it because we're committed to teaching the whole counsel of god so Paul is driven. What's his life aim? What's his conduct? He was humble. He was compassionate. He gave himself. He kept pouring himself out to others. He was passionate about the gospel. He was passionate about teaching the entire Bible, not just parts of it. And so when he calls Timothy to remember these things, when he calls Timothy to, to consider what he has followed, this is what must be brought to mind by Timothy, his conduct and his aim in life. And Paul, and we, we get uncomfortable with this sometimes, Paul would frequently commend himself and the pattern that he set for others to follow. Listen to 1 Corinthians four seventeen, telling the Corinthians why he sent Timothy to them. This is why I sent to you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Just think of the integrity the Apostle Paul had. That he could use himself as an example of encouragement. And that should be something that we strive to, to our children, to our friends. Because they are paying attention, they are watching. We know that from children, right? Your children are watching and paying attention. Um, uh, uh, there's, a, there's a funny story Ted Tripp tells. Um, he had a, when he first got out of seminary, he had a home that he rented, part of this house with his family. From an older lady and part of the deal of the rent was discounted was that he had to shovel the walkway whenever there was snow and he became convinced that what she would do to make him live up to his end of the bargain is the second there is a the tiniest bit of snow on the ground even if the snow is still coming down she would go out and she was old and she'd start shoveling thus sort of forcing him just forcing his hand to go out and shovel and he would grumble about it and one day It's you know just starting to snow, and she's out there with her shovel. And before he can stop it, his son opens the door and yells what he had sadly heard his father say a number of times: "If you think that's going to make my dad shovel the rock away, you've got another thing coming." (laughs) You see, children pay attention. Children are observant, right? They they have that relationship. They're watching. You know, my kids are going to get the real deal about who I am. And I can talk a good game in the pulpit, but they're going to know the real deal. And they will far more likely imitate my conduct and my aim in life than they will the pleasant and pretty things I say. And it's a sobering reminder. So Paul calls Timothy to look to his teaching, to look to his conduct and aim in life. Third, his faithfulness. And it's the word faith there. It's probably faithfulness, um, And it shows up that with patience, love, and steadfastness is a triumvirate. Three of those, faith, love, and endurance, show up frequently. In fact, in in Titus 2.2, talking about the older men. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. These are sort of central Christian character traits. Faith, faithfulness, patience, love, and endurance. And Paul was an example of all of these things. Faithfulness. He did not turn from the course. He made it to the end. We're going to see in chapter 4, he's there. He's at the end. He's made it. Faithfulness. Patience. We used to have to read his letters to know the things he was dealing with. I mean, it amazes me, the patience of Paul. If you read 1 Corinthians, the Corinthian church, all at the same time, had factions running around going, I'm with Paul and I'm with Peter. And they had people getting drunk at communion. And they had people denying the resurrection. And they had the spiritual gifts camps fighting each other. And they had married people living celibately. And they had unmarried people visiting prostitutes. Paul was a patient man. I would be pulling my hair out if all those types of things were going on at once. He was a very patient man. And he was a man of love. Now, the last one, steadfastness or endurance, really links with the last two. His steadfastness, his endurance is seen by point B, his tribulations. His tribulations. Specifically, point one, his sufferings and persecutions. Now it may seem strange if you want to encourage someone. Now think about this. Paul is trying to encourage Timothy, he wants Timothy to stay the course. He wants to offer him encouragement. It would seem rather odd to me by way of encouraging someone to remind them of your sufferings. But in the upside-down kingdom of God, where to be low is to be high, Paul, turn turn with me to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 11. This is what Paul boasts in. It's it's strange, isn't it? This is what authenticates his ministry. Paul says, "You, you want my pedigree? Here's my suffering." You want proof of my apostleship? Here's my suffering. And so he lists it in with his character. He doesn't try to hide from it. He, he boasts, if you will, in it. Now, he's uncomfortable in boasting. If you read 2 Corinthians 11, we'll read that. He's clearly uncomfortable. And for the sake of the gospel he preaches, he has to defend himself, and he has to defend his ministry. And he clearly doesn't like having to do this. The, the Corinthians have put him in an awkward position. So let's pick it up in verse 21. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. What he's doing is he's contrasting his qualifications with the false teachers at Corinth. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors. And then notice where he goes for his qualifications. He doesn't say a student of Gamaliel, because he was a student of Gamaliel. He doesn't say a Pharisee. He goes to his sufferings. I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, Often near death, five times I received at the hands of the Jews forty lashes, lest one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city. No, I skipped over some. On frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness. Danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak. Who is made to fall and I am not indignant. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness." This is is part, again, of the life aim of the Apostle Paul. It's a very different approach to success, a very different approach to life. We know that that one of the charges leveled against Paul by the the false teachers was that because of his sufferings, because of imprisonments, clearly God wasn't blessing his ministry. Prosperity gospel is nothing new. And back then... Clearly, God's disapproving of what Paul's doing because Paul is is imprisoned, and we're free. And if, if you do what's right, God will bless you, and you'll have a happy life, and you'll be healthy, and you'll be wealthy, and that's simply not true. Paul being a prime example. The Lord will bless you, but he may bless you with trials. He may bless you by sanctifying you and burning off the dross in your life. But Paul reminds Timothy of his tribulations and his sufferings. He gives them specifically the sufferings and tribulations at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. Now turn with me to Acts 13. We're going to read this. These are real accounts, and many of the small groups, I think, are actually right about this section of Acts. So I'd like to just read a chunk to remind you what we're talking about, to put flesh and bones on this. It's so easy when you're reading through 2 Timothy to say, ah, tribulations and persecutions. Well, slow down. What's he talking about? It's pretty remarkable. And the apostle Paul, the more I study him, the more I read about him, he's he's just amazing. He's absolutely his drive and his as he says conduct and aim of life is infectious, countercultural and bold and courageous. So Acts 13, we're going to pick it up in verse 42. He's at Iconium. No, he's at Antioch. I'm sorry, he's at Antioch. As they went out, he's just been teaching. As they went out, the people begged these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue was broken up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It is necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold... We are turning to the Gentiles, for so the Lord commanded us, saying, I have made you a light to the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region, but the Jews incited the devout women in high standing and leading men in the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So, so at Antioch, a great reception, especially among the Gentiles. And when they hear that the gospel is going to the Gentiles, they're rejoicing. And Jews infuriated with jealousy at what was theirs, being given to unclean Gentiles, chased and drove Paul out of Antioch. Now, verse 14.1, At Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained there a long time. Does that strike you as odd? (laughs) Precisely because there's opposition, precisely because there's people contradicting what he's teaching, Paul therefore stays there a long time. He doesn't run away from trouble. So they remained there for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided, some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to distreat them and stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycania, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Jump ahead to verse 26. We'll see how this comes to a climax and an end. Acts 14. No, not, sorry, not 26. Sorry, 19. There is no, no... 26 is a very short verse. Okay, Acts fourteen nineteen. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds... They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. So you've had this great success, you know, and everywhere you go, man, the, the gospel is just being received and people are believing, but there's this band of jealous Jews tr- following behind you a couple days behind, and, and he gets to Iconium, and he has another resounding success. The word of God's being received, and the Jews stir up the people, and he's stoned. They throw big rocks at you until you fall down and stop moving. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. I'm going to stop there. Some have suggested that Paul was actually dead here. You know when Paul talks about being caught up into the third heaven? Some have suggested, and it's possible, that he was dead here. The thought being, it's hard to be mistaken about stoning someone to death when they're dead. Because generally, you're going to, you're going to want to crush the skull. And... So it's possible he actually died here. This would be the time when he went up to the third heaven, or he was just, you know, severely wounded. Either way, watch what happens when he gets done. He rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to the city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. Did getting stoned and beaten Scare Paul away? Nope, he got back up went in the city. And then he went back to all the cities where all the trouble had been. Amazing. Returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Now, why does Paul pick this example? Why do you think? Turn over to chapter 16. Verse 1. Paul came also to Derby and Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy. The son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. And Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. So this happened right before he met Timothy. It happened in the very town Timothy lived. Do you think Timothy knew, had heard about this? Do you think the city would be in an uprising and, and a man would be stoned to death, or so they thought? And then he shows up the next day. Do you think that left an impression on Timothy? I'm sure it did. And so Paul goes all the way back to the beginning of his relationship with timothy and the events that preceded even the few months before him meeting timothy he says yeah you, you are well aware you are well acquainted you followed step by step my life my character and my sufferings you know what happened to me antioch and iconium and lystra so we're not talking about little persecution little problems we're talking about people a mob of people are trying to kill me and that's supposed to encourage timothy and i think it does Because point C, we've seen his character, we've seen his tribulations. I want now to look at his confidence. His confidence. Which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. How is Paul able to get back up and go into the city where the people who tried to stone him to death are still there? Because he has confidence that the Lord will deliver him. How is he able to go to a circuit again of these same three cities where all the trouble was? Because he's confident that the Lord will deliver him. See, when you get that, there's a sovereign God who rules the universe. When you get that there's a sovereign Lord who rules all things, you get to live a little differently. You get to live a little more boldly. You're not simply just trying to avoid problems. Sometimes you walk into them. Think of Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 and 9. Persecuted but not forsaken. Struck down but not destroyed. His confidence. Listen to 2 Corinthians 1. 8 through 9. We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. And listen to this amazing statement. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves but on god who raises the dead god will allow god will purpose god will plan to bring suffering and trials into your life to force you to cast yourself upon him god is more concerned with your holiness than your immediate happiness it's true these Paul says that he was brought burdened beyond strength, despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves but on God. Now, is that Satan's goal? Of course not. So, by implication, clearly, Paul is saying the Lord planned, the Lord allowed, the Lord purposed these things. But he's confident the Lord will deliver him. You see, when you get that, that, that the Lord is in control, nothing can happen to you that he will not allow, that he will not permit, that he will not use. You, you live a little differently because you realize that until the Lord's done with me, I'm immortal. Until the Lord's finished with me, until the, the final day in the book of my days that was written before ever I'd lived one, Psalm 139, before that day, I'm indestructible. And even, and this is, get this, turn over in 2 Timothy to chapter 4. Even when it's time to die, will the Lord deliver you there? Yes, He will. Chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, verse 17 and 18. The Lord stood by me. He's talking now about his, His court trial where He's being charged, which will, according to church history, end in a guilty verdict. He's taken outside of Rome and beheaded. The Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, all the Gentiles might hear it. So, I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. So even when it's time to die, even when your enemies would appear to get the upper hand, even when it's time to go home, even there the Lord delivers his people. He brings them safely into his heavenly kingdom. With that confidence, with that hope you live differently you simply live differently you can start saying things like paul to live is christ and to die is gain what's the worst thing they can do they can kill me that is the greatest possible advantage and gain i will ever receive is the moment i go from this mortal coil to eternity and the lord will even be faithful there presiding over it making sure i get home paul's confidence and, and finally, we're to look at point D, his pattern. His pattern. And, and by that, I'm, I'm looking at Paul repeatedly calls on others to imitate him as he imitates Christ. L- listen to 1 Corinthians 11 1. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And, and that's an important caveat there. It's not be imitators of me full stop because I sin. To the degree that I imitate Christ, Paul says, imitate me. And we get uncomfortable with that because, because we know that sometimes people can be followers of men, disciples of certain teachers, and, and we, we know that can get ugly. They stop thinking critically. They just sort of wholesale take whatever is given to them, and, and that's how cults start. But we don't want to so overreact, and I, and I think the American church is more in the danger of the overreaction where... It's just sort of me and Jesus walking off into the sunset. I don't need anybody else. And as we've studied through what it means to be part of a church and what it means to be members of each other, we know that's not true. But here's another reason why you need others. Because you need people whose faith you can imitate. T- turn to Hebrews 13. Thirteen seven. We are not going to get to our second point this morning. That's okay. We'll pick it up next week. So we're just going to finish point one. Praise God. Okay. Hebrews thirteen seven. This is uh, the, the, the verse that validates Christian biographies, among other things. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Imitate their faith. And there's a command. And when I meet people who aren't joined to a church who sort of loosely attend here or there, one of the things, if I can bring it up in a conversation in a way that doesn't make me a jerk, as I'll say to them is, you know, there are commands to all of us that relate to us and how we relate to our leaders. Notice it doesn't say pastor or elders, leaders. And one of the things I love about the plurality of elders is the elders are my leaders. So there's no one on top who this doesn't apply to. All of us in Christ have leaders. And so I'll ask people who who don't have any particular church that they're part of, who are your leaders and, and how do you obey commands like these if you don't have leaders? But here it says, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Apparently, it's important for us to have people who are ministering the word of God to us, to have us to have people who are teaching and feeding us. As much as it's important for us to feed and teach others, that we have people in our lives. And and this is where the internet doesn't work, and this is where even books don't work, because you can't examine their lives. I like books. Go in my office. I got a bunch. I like reading them. But if all I did in my learning was read books and watch things on the internet and read blogs, I'd be missing out on this vital aspect. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So I just encourage you, um, if you don't have leaders, and Hebrews 13 here defines them as simply as those people who speak the word of God to you. I don't mean by this the elders necessarily be a small group leader. It could be a friend who's discipled you some. But if you don't have a relationship like that, get one. Get one to be obedient. Get one to grow. Get one because what the Lord commands is good. It's the pattern of Paul. It's a pattern of Paul that, that our lives are so exposed to each other that you can see and learn. I know how blessed I was by the first person who discipled me, Chris Powell. A police officer in, in New Hampshire and he let me and some other young men into his home with regularity and we'd study the Bible and I was greatly shaped and blessed by him and then later when I was in California, Serena and I were mentored by the MUDs um, Charlie and Cindy Mudd who actually that was the connection of how we knew, got to know and meet Gary Crandall which the Lord used to bring us out here um, and, and I love there's a few things I participate in in the week that I'm not Running or in charge of. And one of them is my men's Bible study on Monday night, where I am. Anyone who's shown up knows I'm not in charge of that. Um, not with Greg Sweet, Mike Doty, Mark Sullivan, Wendell Starmer, and Dave Stringer present. I'm not in charge. Um, and it's great, because I need that. We need to, and here's the blanks on the bottom at the end of point one. We need to ab- be observing and imitating. Be observing and imitating your leaders. If you don't have leaders, get some. And be be discerning. You know, eat the fish, spit out the bones. Don't imitate what's bad. But this is good. This is the pattern the Apostle Paul uses. He's calling Timothy, hey, remember my life. Remember my conduct and my aim of life, my faithfulness, my patience, my steadfastness, my sufferings. You can learn a lot from people, especially as you observe their suffering. It's one of the reasons I'm so impressed with with Jeb Brewer, among other people. Seeing someone suffer well, suffer faithfully. This is is good. Yes, it can be taken to an extreme and become hero worship and become factions. But don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Get some, get some older men or women in Christ, people who speak the word to you and observe their lives and imitate their faith. This is, this is the pattern that Paul sets in motion for Timothy. And it's the pattern Hebrews thirteen seven gives us. The Lord will bless it and it is good. And it is one of the guards that will protect us from false teaching and the wisdom of the world that will creep into the church. We'll pick this up next week will look at point two, but for now, I, I hope and trust that the Lord has given us enough to encourage us and instruct us. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness to us, Lord. You have not just given us your word. You have not just given us yourself and your son, but you have given us each other. We are members of each other. So Lord, help us to live that way. Guard us from the dangerous western notion of freedom and autonomy and privacy that we use as walls to protect us from letting people observe our lives lord help us to understand that you would grow us that you would keep us safe and guard us by exposing our lives to others and exposing us to the lives of others so lord help us to be a body not just in word but in deed as we encourage each other's faith, as we speak the word of truth to each other, as we observe and encourage and imitate the faith of others, as we pursue Christ-likeness. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.